This podcast is from Christian Chapel in Tulsa, Oklahoma. For more information, visit us online at christianchapel.com. If you're a guest this morning, we're thrilled you're here. My name's Chris. I'm the pastor here at Christian Chapel. When you came in this morning, you probably saw these Kingdom Builders cards um, that are on about every third seat. If you are unfamiliar with what Kingdom Builders is, uh, first of all, let me assure you of something. We are not asking you for money this morning. Uh, This is not some kind of building campaign or anything like that. At Christian Chapel, uh, Kingdom Builders is a, a kingdom funding mechanism. It's a way that we, as followers of Jesus at Christian Chapel, look for ways to use the the resources God has given us to be part of building his kingdom all over the world. So for those of you who've been around, you're you're familiar. Kingdom Builders is over and above giving. It's extra giving that we do beyond our kind of normal tithe and offering that we give on a regular basis. Kingdom Builders is a way for us to ask God, what more would you have me do? Through Kingdom Builders, we are able to invest in over 50 missionaries and ministries working around the world. That's the global arm of our Kingdom Builders Fund. We also invest in local ministry through Royal Family Kids Camp, Crisis Pregnancy Outreach, other ministries in town that we have partnered with, taking the gospel to the least and the most overlooked in our city, the most vulnerable. And then we also make next-generation investments through Kingdom Builders, through an internship program at Christian Chapel to raise up future church leaders, providing kids camp scholarships, youth camp scholarships, mission trip scholarships for students, um, all helping kids uh, learn to, to love Jesus and to follow him from some of their earliest memories in life. So next Sunday, I'm going to talk to you more about uh, what we were able to do through our Kingdom Builders Giving in 2019 and some of the opportunities that we have in 2020. Throughout the history of Christian Chapel, we give away 20 to 30 percent of our annual income every year um, to fund the work of God outside of the walls of our church, in our community, and around the world. We're on pace to do that um, again in 2020, so I hope you'll be here next week. But we wanted to get these to you this week because I know some of you are already familiar with Kingdom Builders, and I want you to have time to think and pray about um, what God might have you do to participate in that with us this year. So last, uh, last week, we kicked off this January series called Kingdom Builders. It's a way for us not just to say, God, what do you want me to give, uh, but to say, God, how do you want me to live? And so every January, I feel like the, the beginning of a year is a natural time for us to look back at the year that was, to look ahead at the year that's coming, and just to ask the Holy Spirit to come and say, will you evaluate my life and show me Am I using all of my time, energy, resources, relationships for the glory of God and the growth of his kingdom? Or am I falling into the temptation to use them a little more selfishly and and in ways that really won't last after I'm gone? So last week we talked about how we are all builders and everything we build is going to be tested. This week I want to look at Luke chapter 12 and we're going to see how Jesus teaches us about the way he's going to evaluate our use of his resources and the the things that he has given to us. Okay, so Luke chapter 12, if you have a Bible, you can follow along with me. We'll start in verse 13. If not, it'll be here on the screens for you. It says, someone in the crowd said to him, being Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. 
And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. So in this passage, we we really kind of have two stories that are being told, and and we're going to look at them uh, in that order. So the first story is Jesus uh, has a crowd gathered around him. And uh, I don't know if you've ever been in a crowd of people where there is somebody that everybody wants their attention. But occasionally when you're in that setting, right, so, so maybe it was a classroom setting and, and there's always the, the one person who just kind of pops up with the question that, like, it's a legitimate question, but it's also the wrong question, right? It's the wrong either because of context or tone or the person they're talking to. And this is kind of what we find here. So this, this man is in the crowd and he's listening to Jesus. He, he probably has some awareness of Jesus' reputation as a miracle worker. Uh, maybe has heard the murmurings that, that he's a prophet. Maybe he, he's got some inclination that, that some people think this might be the Messiah. Whatever it is, he knows Jesus is a man of authority. He's a man of power. And he sees this as his opportunity. And he says, teacher, tell my brother to split the inheritance with me. Now, what, what's likely happening here is that this man's father had died. They live in an agricultural society, and so the land that was owned by the father would have been split among his remaining sons. Now, most of the time, to keep the land in the family, though the sons retain the individual ownership of it, they all continue to work the land together. But it seems like this guy has decided, I'm done with the farm life. I'm moving to town, so I want to cash out. So, but there has to be agreement between him and his brother for them to sell the land. So he comes to Jesus. He knows who he is. He knows maybe, maybe his brother's in the crowd. Right? We don't, we don't really know. But he has this opportunity before a man he's, he thinks is a prophet. He maybe has heard might be the Messiah. He's heard he heals the sick. He calms the seas. He drives out demons. And he comes to him and says, tell my brother to give me my stuff. Right? Now, now it's easy for us to sit here today and think, what a waste. Right? If you had your one question to ask Jesus, I hope you would have a better one than that. Right? I hope you would have a better question than solve a fight I'm having with my brother. I mean, this man reduces Jesus to a mother of preschoolers. Right? Tell my brother to give me my toy. Tell him to, it's mine. Tell him to give it back. And so we can kind of sit here and think, well, that's, that's ridiculous. And yet, how many times do you and I do the same thing? Through Jesus Christ, we know who he is. We know what he's done. He's the son of God. He's come to save us from our sins, to restore our connection with God. He's come to fill us with his Holy Spirit. He's come to give us the ability to live in his kingdom, to use our resources, to build his kingdom. We have uninhibited access to him. We can ask him for anything at any time. And yet our most common prayer requests are, God bless my stuff. Make me richer. Make me healthier. Make me stronger, make the people around me nicer, help everything to go my way. So one of the the ways that we can evaluate ourselves going into the new year or ask the, the Spirit to evaluate us is to ask, God, what were the most common prayers I prayed in 2019? And what are the most common prayers I've prayed so far in 2020? And and if we're honest, what a lot of us are going to find is our most common prayers were about our stuff, our things, our reputation, our power, our money, our might. Why? 
Because we have believed the lie of our culture that what we have determines who we are. And the more we have, the more value and worth that we have in life. Now, it's not always strictly materialism, right? Because some of us, we, we are already sitting here this morning thinking, man, this is a good message for those rich people. And I'm glad I'm not one of them, right? Because there's some people here that I saw the car they drove in and get them, right? Get them, get them, get them. But I drove a beater, so I'm exempt, right? Yeah, we, we can have that. But, but we have the ability to keep score in all kinds of areas that have nothing to do with the house you live in, the car you drive, or the amount of money you earn. We keep score in the performance of our kids. We keep score in the titles we have at work. We keep score in the number of volunteer hours that we give at church or at school or in somewhere else. All around us in life, we're constantly in the spot of evaluating where we compare with other people. And our most common prayers in these spaces are, God, help me win. Now, I get it. right? I, I get it. I, how many of you, any of you done the, the Enneagram personality stuff? Some of you? Okay, so, so I'm a three. Um, if, that, if you know me and you know the Enneagram stuff, you're not surprised at all. Uh, the three is called the competitive achiever. Right? I mean, this is, like, there's a reason after most weekends when I coach my son's basketball game, I find a quiet spot in my house Saturday night, and I repent for about five minutes. <laughs> Lord, forgive me. I should not yell at sixth graders like that especially ones I'm not related to. I should not slam water bottles down on the sideline. I should not yell at a kid, have you ever played basketball before? I should not, Lord, forgive me. Why do I do this? Because my whole life has been built around this competitive idea that if I work hard enough, at the end of the game, whatever it might be, the scoreboard is going to show that I won. It's why I love sports and it's why I hate sports. Right? Because it's, it's this evaluation, and I enter into it and believe the lie that whatever it says is who I am. At the end, I'm a winner, I'm a loser. Now, I can take that, and I can apply that to every other area of my life. I can apply it to my relationships. If they're better than everyone else's, then I'm winning. If my wife likes me more than your wife likes you, I'm better than you. Right? If, I know not all of you think this way, but I do. And God is working in me, and he is trying to refine it out of me. And every time I think we've finally turned the corner, there's another turnover, right? And and here we go again. We're starting all over again. It's just the way it works. But here's what, what we want to learn is there are a lot of times we're coming to Jesus with those primary requests, and our primary requests are primarily about us. God, help me climb higher. Help me be respected more. Help me do these things. Help others to want to be like me. And Jesus, his response most often, it's, it's not, hey, I don't care about that. Shut up. His response is more like, you know, I came here for something different. And so this man's standing in the crowd, and he says, teacher, tell my brother to split the inheritance with me. And Jesus looks at him. He says, who appointed me judge or arbiter between you? There are other people that you can talk to about this. And then he turns to the rest of the crowd. He's done talking to the man individually. He turns to the rest of the crowd and he says, y'all need to watch out. Be on your guard against greed because life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he's telling them, he's telling us, hey, look, you've got to understand. I'm not looking at the same scoreboard you all are looking at. And if all you're worried about is how much stuff you have and how it compares to everyone else, you're worshiping greed, not God. And now Jesus then transitions and begins to tell a secondary story 
to make a point to the man who asked the question, to make a point to the people who are gathered there, and to make a point for all of us who are here listening today. So the, the first thing we're learning is we want to make sure when we have time with Jesus, we're asking him the right questions. And those right questions primarily are about, Lord, what would you have me to do? What do you want to do in me? What do you want to work in me in all of these spaces? And then he'll begin to speak and he'll begin to show and reveal. So as you kind of work into the story, in verse 16, it says, He told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? So let's, let's start with this conclusion here, okay? And then we'll get back and we'll kind of work our way through the story. So Jesus tells the story. He's a rich man who has a bunch of stuff. He's going to store it all up for himself. And the evaluation at the end is not, great job. Good job. Those barns are awesome. That grain, I'm glad you're saving it and storing it. His response is, you fool. So two things to understand here. First of all, that idea of a fool is, is it's an Old Testament term used to describe someone who is empty-headed and empty-hearted in their view of God. Psalm 14.1 tells us the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And so, so what he's saying is this rich man, for all of his success, for all of the ways the world would look at him and say he's nailing it, the evaluation of the scriptures of his life is he is a fool. He lives life as if God does not exist. The second thing we need to understand is in the story Jesus tells, he says, God spoke to the man and called him a fool. Now, we read the story knowing fully who Jesus is. He is the son of God. He is a member of the Trinity. He is God in flesh. And so when Jesus says God called the man a fool, Jesus is sharing his evaluation of this lifestyle. And so what that means for you and I today is that Jesus will evaluate the way that we live. He does care about what we do with our stuff. And there will come a day that we will be held accountable for everything we have done with everything he has given to us. And so right now in this season, we want to enter into a season of evaluation and say, Lord, if you're going to do it then, can you just go ahead and do it now? If at the end of my days, you're going to tell me how I did with all my stuff, can you just start speaking to me about it now? And I want to enter into this process where you lead, you guide, you speak, so that at the end I can hear, well done, good and faithful servant, instead of, you fool. Right? And, and so as you kind of then back up and work through this story, you see the, a couple characteristics of the fool. And so what I want us to do this morning is is just spend a a few minutes exploring some of these. And as we do, if there are spaces in your life where you think, I identify with that. I struggle with that. This morning, don't view this as God's time to come judge you, but view it as an invitation from him of, yes, that's there, but I've come to lead you out of that and into a path of life. So the first thing we see with the rich man as, as the fool is that the fool gives no thought to God. It says that there was a certain rich man, and he had an abundant harvest. Now, as a a farmer, he should have known more than anyone how dependent his success was on God. 
As a farmer, you can work hard, but at the end of the day, you are dependent on does the sun shine at the right time? Do the rains come at the right time? Is the soil in the right condition? Does the seed do what it's supposed to do? When the harvest comes, is the weather right so you can get it in at the right time? Farmers should know more than anyone in the world that their livelihood is connected to the sovereignty of God. And yet this man, somewhere along the line, has decided, I've done this entire process. I have created this abundant harvest. Now, for you and I, the temptation is even greater. Most of us in this room, our livelihoods are disconnected from land and soil and weather. Right? We, we work in spaces where we're not, I mean, very few of us are getting up every morning and thinking, Lord, send the rain. God, God, protect us during harvest season. We're just not, we're, I mean, some of us, you're like me, you're, you're maybe two generations removed from the farm. You're one generation. Some of us are five or six generations. And as we lose that connection, what happens a lot of times is we begin to lose the connection of our provision with God's presence. And we can start to believe the lie of, hey, and, you know, in my job, in your job, I'm working in an office, we're doing these different things, and we don't see God as our provider. We see it as the boss, the company, the economy. But I, I don't know if you've ever kind of went down that path. And if you're, if you're type A, if you're the controlling person you have, you've went down the path of at some point you've woken up in the middle of the night and thought about how many different uh, forces are at work to provide your paycheck. And just stop to consider for a moment if one or two of those change, what happens to my family? Right? I mean, most of us, we, we work in pretty kind of skilled office type jobs. And, and if everything crashes, most of us are going to starve because we got no real skills. Like we don't, I mean, that's great that you can like engineer stuff and build all these different things and you've got all these systems and spreadsheets and, and whatever else, but you can't grow a cucumber in your garden. Right, and, and I, I'm right there with you. Like when the canned food's gone, we're gonna huddle around as a family, and we're gonna say, "Here we come, Jesus." Because like I'm not building a house, I'm not growing the farm, I'm not my third of an acre in Broken Arrow is not gonna produce the crops my family needs to live on. And after I shoot one neighbor's dog for food, that's all we got left. I'm done. Like that's the that's the extent of my survival. And so we all live in this space where we are just, we're disconnected from the land, and the disconnection from the land can lead us to a disconnection from God. And we start to believe the lies of the rich man, that what I have is a result of my work. I earned, I created, I sent in the resume, I started the business, I got the job, I found the clients, I got into the market at the right time, I got out of the market at the right time. I, 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 because here's what happens when you forget God then not only do you kind of live in this space of, well, everything I have was created by me, but you also begin to become very selfish with the results. So just listen to the language that Jesus ascribes to this rich man. It's all eyes and mice. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and I will store my surplus grain, and I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. His response to his abundant harvest was, look at all that I've done, look at all that I've achieved, look at all that I've acquired. The proper response should have been, thank you, Lord, for everything that you have provided for me. Thank you for the sun, thank you for the rain, thank you that the seed did its job in ways that I cannot understand or explain. Thank you that while I slept, the crops grew. 
Thank you that while I was doing nothing, the, the laws of nature that you had put in place were in work to not only provide for my family, but to provide in an abundance for me. Thank you, Lord. And, and instead, he just says, I, my, and I, and my, and me, and mine. For you and I, it's a great reminder to us that thankfulness will kill selfishness. And so, so when we're kind of looking, look back at the year that was, look ahead at the year that comes, How often are we stopping and expressing thankfulness to God for all that he's provided us for? Now, again, in a a kind of a scoreboard watching culture, this is very difficult for us. Because instead of saying, thank you, Lord, for all that you've done for me, we're constantly looking to the left and the right and thinking, Lord, do, do I want it more like them. Instead of saying, God, thank you that I had the ability to take my family on a vacation. We're saying, well, they went on four. Jesus, can I have two this year? Right? Instead of saying, Lord, thank you that that you've blessed me with a a job that I enjoy, we look at somebody and they're like, how do they, they don't even work. How do they make their money? I want to do that. Every time I see them, they're golfing or at the beach. And yet it just seems like it expands and explodes. and, And we're just constantly looking to the left and the right. Instead of saying, thank you, God, for what I have, we're constantly saying, why don't I get what they have? And our greed fuels our selfishness. But if we can step out of that process and begin to say, everything I have is a gift from the Lord, everything he provided for me, I'm going to start thanking him for it. That thankfulness will kill that selfishness. Now for the fool, he thinks, first of all, there's no God. I've created all of this myself. And because I've created all of this myself, it is all mine. And then the the third thing he thinks is when I have an abundance, it's for my comfort. Right, so, so the man's response is, I have this abundant harvest. What am I going to do? I know. I'll build a bigger barn. And then I'll put all my new grain in the bigger barn. And then when I'm done, I will take it easy for many years. I will eat, drink, and be merry. Right? In, in our context, this is the, like, he decides, I'm going to retire by 40. And then I'm just going to kick back, and I'm going to hang out, and I'm not going to do anything at all. Now, there, there's a couple problems with that approach. First of all, he has lost the view that everything came from the Lord, and now in harvest season, everything still belongs to the Lord. So instead of saying, Lord, I see the abundance and I see your provision, what would you have me do with it? He never even considers that conversation and just says, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to stop working and take it easy. Right? So, so the first problem is his view of his stuff is his stuff, not God's. The second problem is he views all of God's provision as a way he can exempt himself from the normal patterns and rhythms of life that God has called us to. God has created us to work. He's created us to live lives of structure, lives of intentional contribution to the world around us. Our culture has told us, work hard for as short a period as you can, amass as much as you can, and then spend the rest of your life living like you're 12 years old. Just do whatever you want. All the time, every day, do whatever you want. This is what this guy has decided. I'm going to take it easy for many years. Now, again, I, I know we're, we're all, for the most part, we're removed from the farm. Do you know what happens to a farm if you don't work it for years on end? When, you do, when all the money runs out and it's finally time to go back, you're, you're basically starting from nothing. Like all of those fields are, then become overgrown. They become overtaken. Everything that had been worked to establish is done. And, and you've kind of put yourself in this position. 
And so what, what we want to say is, Lord, when you provide in abundance for me, my first response is thankfulness. And in thankfulness, I'm acknowledging this all comes from your hand. And then my second response is, Lord, what do you want to do with this? And often what God will show us is he did not bless us to increase our standard of living, but to increase our standard of giving. So that we can begin to look at the needs of the world around us and say, okay, Lord, if this is what you've given to me, then I'm going to be part of giving it to others as well. And this is how Jesus ends his story with an invitation for us to be rich towards God. So he kind of brackets this parable with two statements. Guard against greed because life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And then he ends it with be rich towards God. And he's trying to help us understand, look, we have a guy who comes and his only concern in his life is tell my brother to sell it so I can have my money. He doesn't care about the relational cost. He doesn't care about who Jesus is. He just wants his money. And then he tells a story about a man who views all of his resources as his possessions to do with as he chooses and as he pleases. And Jesus' pronouncement over both those situations is you guys have missed the mark entirely. And then his teaching to the rest of the crowd that day and his teaching to us is guard against greed. Life doesn't consist in an abundance of possessions. And instead, be rich towards God. Now, what does it mean to be rich towards God? Jesus gets into it a little bit in the verses that follow. But if we kind of back up and take a big picture view of the scriptures, you'll find again and again and again, Jesus talks to us about a rich lifestyle. And the rich lifestyle he talks to us about honestly has very little to do with how much money you have in the bank, how many homes you own. And it has a, a, a much, much more to do with how you understand everything you hold in your hands. For Jesus, richness is not about the amount you possess, but it's about your willingness to surrender every single part of it back to the Lord to follow his leading, his guiding, and his direction in these moments. So, so I'm going to run you through just some of the, the different things from the Gospels Jesus says to us about being rich towards God. Okay, we're not a lot of commentary. They're going to be here on the screens for you to follow along with. Okay, Luke 16, 13. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Luke 12, 48, from everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. Matthew 5, 42, give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Luke 12, 33 and 34, sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out. A treasure in heaven that will never fail. Where no thief comes near, no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Matthew 6, 2 and 3, when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Luke 6.35, love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Luke 6.38, give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Matthew 25, 23, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. And finally, Luke 14, 12 and 14, then Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your, your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. 
If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed, although they cannot repay you. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the dead. These are the summary of what it looks like to guard against greed and be rich towards God. And I don't know about you, but when I read through, and we could, we could keep going, but when I read through just those few examples of what it looks like to be rich, I have to be honest, there are some spaces in my life where I don't live by that standard. Where my life looks a lot more like our culture than it does what Jesus has described. You know who my favorite people are to have over to my house? First, it's no one. And then secondly, it's my close friends. Right? And forgive me, I know some of you, you're great hosts and hostesses. And man, there's nothing I love more than sitting by myself with just my family in my house. It's wonderful. But Jesus says, hey, when you have someone over, invite people that you're not close to, that are not going to pay you back, that you're not going to build any reputation or gain any standing. Just open your home and open your hearts to them. And it begins to challenge me. Am I I doing that? Am I investing in relationships where I have no hope of getting anything in return? It's not just about what you do with your money. It's also about what you do with your time, your energy, your resources, the relational capital that you've accrued, the doors that have been opened for you. Are you just using those for your own glory and your own benefit, or are you using them for the glory of God and the benefit of others? And so as we read through these instructions that Jesus gives us about being rich towards God, it should force us into a season of evaluation. And yet the the primary point that Jesus makes here is a point about money and possessions. The rich man is not judged because he had an abundant harvest. He's not even judged because he wanted to save some of his harvest. He's judged because he had never given any regard at all That all of this is a gift from God, and he has an expectation for how I should use it. And so for you and I, we we can read through passages like this, and we can try to make the application anything but money and possessions, because that's easier. And and money and possessions, they, they just simply do not lie about the state of our heart. Like we're in into a season of life, if you're working, you're going to get a W-2 from your employer. You're going to start getting, if you gave any kind of nonprofit last year, you're going to start getting giving statements here in January. As, as the spring progresses on, you're going to start working on your taxes. And, and in all of these settings, it is a black and white evaluation of do I live in a way that is rich toward God? Because those bottom lines don't lie. You see, this is what I made, and you see, this is what I gave. And, and it's not about, I got to increase this so God will love me more, right? That's not it at all. If, if that's what you're hearing this morning, I'm doing a terrible job and I apologize. But it's all about coming into a season of evaluation, understanding if Jesus says he's going to evaluate me on the last day, I would like him to go ahead and start that process on this day. I don't want to wait till the end of my life to find out I did it all wrong. I'd rather get some mid-course corrections And begin to live according to the standards of his kingdom by the power of his spirit living in me. As I was studying through this message, there's an author named Daryl Bach who just kind of wrapped this up really nicely for us. He said, a test of our heart is how we give. Are we generous or are we hoarders? This is a test we have to engage in privately before the Lord. No one can tell someone else exactly how to answer such questions, for there is no magic percentage that is to be reached. The Old Testament standard of a tithe, 10%, might be too low for what we are capable of doing. 
But the issue of our potential generosity can and should be raised as a matter for spiritual reflection. That is the function this parable performs. And so I know, I know when you, when you read through this parable, there's a temptation, because I, I face it too, of we just want to put ourselves next to Jesus. Right? He's speaking to the crowd, and we just want to step up next to him and say, get them, Jesus. Get the rich people. That guy's got really big barns, right? It, it looks like a Tesla, his barn. It looks like a third home. That lady, her family, they've, they've got so much from their last harvest. and they haven't, Get them, Jesus. Get them, Jesus. But we don't get to. See, in, in this parable, we are all in the crowd. And we're all the ones who hold an abundant harvest in our hands. And Jesus is saying, look, there, there are two choices. You can be rich towards God, or you can be a fool. And here's the thing, you, you can engage in disciplined religious giving and still be a fool because your heart has not been transformed. And so we come into these seasons of evaluation and we say, Lord, speak to me through my bank statements. Speak to me through my credit card statements. Speak to me through my W-2 and the giving statements that come in. Speak to me in all these areas, Lord, about where I'm building my life, about where I'm making my investment. Speak to me about how I'm keeping score. Speak to me, convict me, Lord, of the spaces where I think what I have determines who I am. Convict me of that, that competitive desire to always be better than the person next to me. And Lord, transform it. Begin to teach me and show me we are all stewards. We are, everything we have just passes through our hands. And the only thing that lasts are the investments we make in his kingdom. The only thing that lasts after we're gone and our names are forgotten are what we've done to build the kingdom of God in our world. And that the great part of this parable is that Jesus tells it as he stands there in front of those people. And so he says, look, God's going to evaluate this man as a fool. I'm going to evaluate this man as a fool. He stands there as God. And every person in the crowd that day has an opportunity to say, Jesus, am I living like a fool? Here's my story. Here's my harvest. Am I doing what you want me to do? Am I being faithful? Am I living generously? Or am I living with closed hands and holding it on all to myself? So some of us this morning, it's, it's, a, it's a couple changes that need to happen in our hearts. First of all, if you've never entered into that relationship with Jesus, you, you've lived like the fool. There is no God and I do what I want. This morning, his invitation to you is, hey, let's move off that path. And let's move into a path where you surrender to me. You take up your identity as your son and your daughter. Where you ask for forgiveness of sins and I lead you into a new experience of life. If you're on the path of the fool, that's not who you are and it's not where you have to stay. Jesus calls you out of it and he calls you off of it and he calls you into new life. The second thing for others of us is that idea of God evaluating us terrifies us. Because we have a view of him like a, a teacher in school who gives you the textbook on the first day of class and says, we're gonna have a final at the end of semester. I'll see you there. It'll be based off this stuff. There's no teaching. There's no instruction. There's nothing that happens along the way. 
And this is our view of Jesus. He's given us the scriptures and, and now we've just got to do our best to keep the rules and we hope at the end that in the balance of life, we've done more good than bad. But that's not at all how he evaluates. It's not at all how he works. Jesus says, I'm going to evaluate then, but I'm also evaluating now. And here's what I want you to do, but I'm not just going to tell you. I'm actually going to show you. I'm going to empower you. I'm going to enable you to do these things. It's the equivalent of the teacher who says, hey, at the beginning of the semester, here's the textbook. Here's all the things we're going to be tested on at the end of the year. We're going to work on these every week. I'm going to make sure you master every concept. If you don't get it, we're going to work over it again. You can come in extra. We can st- we'll can spend all the time in the world we need to. Those days leading up to the final, they're giving you the study guides, and they're saying the study guide is very similar to the test, the stu- which is teacher code for the study guide is the test, Right? And they're doing everything they can. Why? Because their goal is not to humiliate students. Their goal is to help students master the concepts and move forward in their education. And when Jesus comes and says, I'm going to judge you at the last day, he says, but I'm going to judge you by what I've accomplished in your life. I'm going to judge you based off of what I've done for you and through you. And it's going to be my spirit. So anytime you start to get off track, I'm going to speak, I'm going to convict, and I'm going to guide you back on. And so this morning at the beginning of a new year, we're inviting the evaluation of the Holy Spirit. And we're not doing so from a position of fear. We're doing so from a position of freedom. Saying, Lord, I believe that your plans are best and that you are leading and guiding. So if you'll stand with me, I want to pray for us. The band's going to come back and lead us in a final song this morning. We're going to take a chance to to respond to what God is saying. We bow your heads and close your eyes. Jesus, we come today, and first, Lord, I pray for those who come without a relationship with you. They've never asked you to forgive them of their sins. They've never received you as their king and their savior. I pray today, Lord, that you would give them the courage to make that decision. Through a simple prayer of Jesus, forgive me, and Jesus, take over every area of my life. May they step from the path of the fool onto the path of life. And Lord, I pray for the rest of us that you would come today and you would speak clear, challenging, convicting words of evaluation. Show us the spaces, Lord, where we are beginning to have a a fool's view of our resources. And Holy Spirit, we, we pray that as you speak, you would also give us faith and courage to respond. Forgive us for evaluating our lives by the standards of our culture instead of the standards of your kingdom. Forgive us for thinking all that we have is a result of our work and our effort and not your gracious hand being given to us. So Lord, I pray that 2020 would be a year where we experience the wholeness of life that comes from understanding all we have comes from you. And you have a plan for every part of it. So Lord, we ask this year when it comes to our finances, when it comes to our resources, show us where you are calling us to increase our generosity. Show us where you're calling us to save and to be wise stewards. Show us where you're calling us to take steps of faith. Show us where you're calling us to trust in you regardless of what the bottom line says. Jesus, we want you to be Lord of every area of our life. And so we surrender it all to you today and we invite your spirit to come and speak and move in us. In Jesus' name, amen.
this band leads us. If, if you need to begin a relationship with Jesus this morning or restart one that's grown cold, or maybe you just need some prayers for others to, to join with you that you'll be a good steward of all God has, our prayer team's gonna be out the back doors and to the left in the prayer room. As we sing this last song, they would love to join with you in those personal prayers to see God's salvation come to you, to see his transformation come to every part of your life. The rest of us will sing this song as a declaration of who Jesus is and what he's accomplished.
this morning is that you go with a firm conviction, not just that Jesus has a plan for every part of your life, but that he loves you so much, he wants to come and reveal it to you every single day. God's great design is not that you and I would fumble our way through lives and arrive at the end and say, I wish I could have done it better. But it is that we would live with him by the power of his spirit every day, surrendering all of our time, our talent, our talent, our energy, our resources to him. And at the end, we will hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Not because of who we are, but because he was faithful to lead, to speak, to guide, and to correct when needed. And we submitted to that and we followed him. So may you go in peace, may you go in confidence, knowing that God has a purpose for every part of your life and is actively working to reveal it to you. Thank you for worshiping him with us today. We'd love to see you in a home group this evening. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christian Chapel. For more information, visit us online at christianchapel.com.